This is the Outstanding Advisor Podcast, the show that features outstanding financial advisors. Advisors with an interesting story to tell. Here's the host of the Outstanding Advisors Podcast, David Macchia. Hi, this is David Macchia. Welcome to the Outstanding Advisor Podcast. I'm happy to introduce our guest today, Andy Panko from Matuchin, New Jersey. He's the principal of Tenon Financial and very much involved with the tax-sensitive financial planning. We'll talk about that and many other things, but I'd like to start in the beginning, Andy. Where were you born? Right here in New Jersey. I was born and raised in Woodbridge, New Jersey, about 10 minutes away from where I live now. Great, great. And um, what was your childhood like? What was your early childhood like? What's your family composition? I don't know. Fairly typical, I'd say. I had one brother, uh, parents, you know, mar- married parents. They both worked uh, middle-class family in suburban New Jersey, about 30, 30 something miles outside of Manhattan. Uh, father worked at a plumbing wholesale place. Mother worked for the phone company. Mm-hmm. She still calls it the phone company her whole life. It's kind of it. Fairly, fairly straightforward, I'd say. So I know from doing a little investigating that you're very much involved in building. And I know that means building financial plans for your clients, but it means building other things too. Can you talk about how your interest in building developed? Sure. So very into woodworking, home improvements, anything mechanical and you know, involving hands. My, my father was very handy, remodeled our house as I, was a, as I was a kid, and he did it all himself. And due to just constraints on time and money, it took him, I want to say, 13, 14 years. So my whole childhood was always around different stages of deconstruction and construction. And I was always helping with little projects. So very interested in it and mechanically inclined. And when I was in college, I started watching a lot of new Yankee workshop with Norm Abrams Mm -hmm. and really got hooked on wanting to do woodworking. So when I graduated college, just started buying myself some tools and made small projects, little birdhouse and a blanket chest and whatever, and just slowly bought more tools, took on bigger projects, and eventually remodeled a couple houses, plumbing, electrical, carpentry, you know, framing, drywall, painting, everything, and really enjoy it. And quick fun fact, I was a uh, contestant on HGTV's All-American Handyman second season, which came out, I think it aired fall 2011. Uh, it was one of those elimination-style competitions where, like, like sort of Top Chef, where you got to cook something and you get eliminated off if you don't, don't do well. It was that, but it was various different building and home improvement projects. So that was a fun experience. But yeah, I thoroughly enjoy making things with my hands and, and woodworking is my real specialty in terms of hobbies. So when you were in that competition, what, what was your project? There was different things. Um, for example, the first project that all 20 contestants had to do was they'd give you two sheets of plywood and you get a basic set of you know drills and saws and stuff. And they say, go make something. And that's it you know, no, no guide. It's just kind of to see how creative you are, how you use your time and how difficult the project is, et cetera. So that was one. Uh, another one was like, here's a sample room. They framed up a, a, a dummy room and you had to install a window. You had to do drywall. You had to run electrical through it. So there was that. You had to put a floor in. Uh, one of the competitions, we had to build a shed. They gave you a materials list the nights before and you had to build a, you know, whatever it was, four by eight shed and see how you do that and how you frame it and plan it. So whole host of things. It was a really cool experience. Sounds it. And um, I also heard, also heard that you had a proclivity for comedy. Is that true? 
Uh, depends who you ask. My wife doesn't think I'm very funny. Um, but, but yes, I, I dabbled in stand-up comedy in 2004 or five while working in, in New York in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, I came across, I don't remember how, but this, this nighttime comedy school where you went one night a week for a few weeks and they teach you the basics of comedy, stand-up comedy. And, uh, thought it'd be something that'd be fun to try. I always thought I was sort of funny of a person. Again, different people may not believe that, but, or agree with it. And uh, so I did that and it culminated in the, the graduation show, if you want to call it that, was all of the 12 students in this class got to perform at Caroline's on Broadway, which is a you know, big, well-known uh, comedy place in, in Times Square. And it was uh, a friendly environment. It was bring family and friends, basically. It wasn't just random strangers there to heckle you. So it was really good, supportive, fun experience. And after that, I kind of tried to keep it going. I was still working full-time in uh, you know, banking and, and corporate finance. So it wasn't never ever going to be a full-time thing, but I did a handful of uh, kind of glorified open mic shows, you know, new talent shows, basically uh, a few times at different places in New York. And I don't know, last show I did was maybe 10 years ago, probably at this point, I just kind of gave up, but fun experience to do at the time. Um, glad I did it. Definitely helps with professional life even in terms of public speaking and confidence of being mm -hmm. in front of people. The... Uh, putting yourself through the, the, the pressures of getting on stage, trying to make random strangers laugh really helps build a lot, uh, you know, character and speaking skills and confidence. So all things considered, I'm glad I did it. You think you could ever go back? Sure. I don't think I'm good enough to ever make a career out of it. Um, I, I think I have funny thoughts, funny material, but my deliver, I have no acting chops. Like I have a really dry sense of humor. I can make jokes. They're like, wow. Yeah, that's funny but but i can't act it out and make it look funny so i'll never get anywhere with it professionally I'm, I'm well aware of that um would i do it just for the fun of it i don't know maybe we'll say i haven't had any desire to but if one day the mood strikes me sure i wouldn't put it past me so in your subconscious or semi-conscious mind as we talk about this is there a joke that's on the tip of your tongue you know there's not i'm really bad about that i uh <laughs> I get asked that a lot. You think I'd have one queued up, ready to go, but, but I don't, unfortunately. No, I, there's okay. one I saw the other day. My uh, my mom was an X-ray technician. She met my dad when he was in getting X-rays. I wonder what she saw in him. <laughs> Real That's cheesy dad jokes. Yeah, thanks. thanks That's thanks. pretty good. So let's talk about finance. Sure. At some point, you entered the world of finance. How did that happen? What was the motivation there? Not not a really juicy backstory. I mean, I was always interested in finance. My family, again, middle class, didn't have a tremendous amount of money by any means, but my parents lived well within their means, were, were wise users, limited users of credit, and you know, never had flashy lifestyles. So I, I was always raised around that, which helped. Um, some point, middle school, maybe early high school, I saw like an infomercial for Wall Street Journal I had this little book they put out like intro to stocks and bonds or something like that. And it was truly, you know, one on one super high level basics of investing. Bought that at the local bookstore, read it, thought it was really fascinating. And that kind of solidified my interest in, in finance and money. But in high school, when I was a junior or senior, I decided I either want to be a physics teacher, or a calculus teacher, I really always enjoyed math and science and quantitative stuff. But for whatever reason, um, don't know why, kind of made a last minute decision when I was going to college, I wanted to go for finance. 
and I did. I went to University of Delaware, got an undergraduate degree in finance, a double marketing, uh, a double major in marketing, and just really, really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, finance at the college level, at least then. Now there's some personal finance track things, but at the time it was all traditional corporate finance, you know, investments and derivatives and you know, corporate accounting, even things like that. So did that. Uh, wanted to be an advisor while in college. I wasn't really sure what that looked like, but wanted to help people make decisions about money was, was all I knew or all I thought I wanted to do. And, and this is really sort of a pivotal point that kind of led me down the path I'm on now and has, has created some of my views about the industry was when I was in college, going to job fairs and interviewing at places that, that were hiring for quote unquote financial advisor roles. It was all wirehouses. I didn't know the term wirehouse at the time, but it was all wirehouses, uh, you know, large asset managers and insurance companies. And it was either hundred percent commission selling product, or it was gathering assets to charge, you know, percentage of the assets, or at the time loaded mutual funds were still fairly common. This was late nineties. So it was all, you know, go sell this fund because it's got a 5% upfront load or something and just got turned off. You know, I just wanted to give advice and help. That wasn't what I thought the industry uh, or what I thought I wanted it to be. So I got kind of disenfranchised and gave up on the advising idea. And ultimately in 2000, when I graduated, stumbled into an actuarial job at, uh, I don't know if I should name names, but a large U.S. insurance company. And so that wasn't sales or advising at all. It was doing uh, valuations and asset liability mismatching of some of their pension products and stayed there for four years. Uh, I don't know how far you want to get to the rest of the work history, but stayed there for four years, got an MBA while I was working there, and then parlayed that into what the rest of my career was, which was uh, institutional corporate and banking. Yeah, I'd like to know about it because I want to take take you through the steps that led you into your practice that you're currently involved in. Sure. So first job out of school was at this you know big insurer doing uh, pension actuarial work. I wanted to see and do as much as I could. So I was there for four years total. In those four years, they paid 90% for me to get my MBA. I went to uh, Rutgers Business School. And I, I kind of put myself in my own rotation at this insurance company. So my second job after the actuarial one was doing the general account, uh, reporting for the general account risk management. It's called Asset Liability and Risk Management Group, basically pulling together all the assets, all the liabilities of the general account and some mm -hmm. of the separate accounts and reporting on what assets did they hold, what's the duration mismatch, mismatch et cetera. Did that for a year. Then I did a securities lending trade support role. So I saw how insurance companies have these big idle portfolios of assets. They squeeze out a little more, you know, uh, P&L by, by lending them out. Did that for a year. And then fourth and final job there was uh, private placement credit research for, you know, their, their proprietary investments they make in uh, private debt for their, you know, in-house investments. Finished well, my before, before we get off that, that topic, just let me interrupt with something. Sure. You know, one of the issues that you're probably aware of in recent years, there's been a great deal of activity among PE firms um, investing and purchasing, partnering with life insurers. Given your background in understanding the economics of life insurance companies and where the risk is and isn't, do you have a view on whether that's a healthy development or not? I. I, I don't, I frankly don't know enough about the economics of why the PE firms want that. 
I was loosely involved and didn't even know it or appreciate it at the time. And one of my roles, I don't know when this was, 2012 maybe, um, with uh, an insurer that was getting bought out by a PE fund, we did some of the analysis of the financing that the PE fund wanted. Um, again, I didn't think much of it at the time, but come to find out now it's been a relatively large trend over, over the last 10 years. So, so I don't know. Um, I mean, I guess it's decent source of capital for insurance companies, but private equity firms are, are known to, I don't want to say be cutthroat, but strip things down, really try to optimize efficiency and P&L to the point that it could be a detriment. And what's to say they won't cut their losses and walk away at some point from an insurance deal gone bad, or at least gone not as good as they thought it would. So I'm not really sure. Uh, I know there's there's rumblings I've read anecdotally from other folks in the industry who know more about this than me that they are concerned about it. Can't quite put their finger on why, but could see it going wrong at some point. What, what, what's your take on it? Well, you know, I, it's not fully developed, but uh, you know, one of the issues that concerns me is only that these arrangements are fairly opaque. They don't mm -hmm. necessarily show up in the insurance company's statutory accounting, and, um, and therefore it makes people wonder, you know, where the risk lies. And there's a you know sort of an incestuous trend toward. Uh, reinsurers that are part of the family, as opposed to, you know, separating the risk out to some other economic entity. So I don't know enough about it, but that's why I wanted to ask you, given your, given your background. Okay. One interesting thing was um, most of my career in, in, uh, you know, the corporate institutional banking was providing financing to hedge and private equity funds for derivative trades, cross various products, or even uh, portfolio finance against portfolios of securities. And a few of the hedge funds I covered had, and probably still have, reinsurance uh, entities because it was a good source of capital, mm -hmm. yeah. and it was they thought fairly low risk. They they would they reinsure things like uh, hurricane and natural disasters, and running the stats and the you know the actuarial analysis on it showed it's a pretty stable flow of income for relatively small, relatively isolated events. So they would do that. They'd start a reinsurance entity, invest its assets under its normal hedge fund strategy, be it equity long short or you know merger arbitrage, whatever it may be, and and they view that as a good, relatively stable source of capital. So, I haven't followed since I left the industry a handful of years ago, so I don't know how that's been turning out. But it was a trend where multiple large uh, hedge funds did have reinsurance entities they set up. Yeah, I think it's accelerated. Okay. Okay. So next step, where, where what's in the chronology? Where are you next? Sure. So summer 2004, recently finished my MBA. With that in hand, wanted to see what this can get me. So left the insurance company at the time. There was no requirement or commitment for me to stay a certain length of time after finishing the MBA that they paid 90% for. And uh, came across the job at a, at a large, uh, what was at the time, Japan's largest financial institution, banking organization here in New York, but uh, doing counterparty analysis and derivative risk management was it sanwa it was it was mizuho uh, they were the largest but they, they since got dethroned by i don't know mitsubishi ufj or something there's always mergers and acquisitions um doing something i didn't even know existed so it was doing the subsidiary of mizuho i worked for was an interest rate derivative market maker so to interest rate swaps, you know, fixed and floating, they did FX, they did some credit default swaps, uh, futures, forwards, options on, on interest rates. 
I loosely knew what those were at the time. I'd never heard of something called an ISDA. It's the the standardized legal contract that governs OTC, you know, over-the-counter derivative transactions. So I became, uh, you know, well-versed in ISDA and the whole concept, the whole world of OTC derivatives, which I never really knew much about. And uh, also focused on counterparty credit. So the banks and brokers that Mizuho dealt with and the hedge funds that they dealt with. So it was kind of a multi-pronged credit risk slash market risk role. Did that. And then more or less stayed in that same type of capacity from 2004 all the way through to 2019. When let me, I let me interject start. before we get into the, the planning. Sure. With all your financial engineering background, does all the financial engineering that goes on worry you? Uh, yes, definitely. And we saw financial engineering blow up in, in 07, 08 with the creation of CDOs and CDO squared and the whole concept of risk pooling and tranching. And on the surface, it makes sense. You can take a pool of sludge, you know, at least some of that sludge is going to pay you off. So mm -hmm. in principle, what's wrong with carving out a portion that your company you get paid on and calling it AAA rated, the rest of the stuff, you know, et cetera. So we all know the story. What happened with the mortgage crisis was well, lots of things, but uh, there's way too generous in considering, you know, X amount of a pool of assets, AAA quality, when in actuality, and there's lots of default to stuff that AAA. So that was all financial engineering and risk sharing. And everyone thought it was miraculous at the time and did make a lot of sense, but we didn't realize how incestuous and intertwined the whole world was. And everyone was just passing off the risk to someone else. We were all collectively holding it. So that definitely uh, was a concern, still is a concern, still goes on. I mean, there's some not that I, I agree with overbearing regulation, but there was Wall Street financial services as a whole got uh, way too freewheeling leading up to the financial crisis. Things like AIG, for example, you know, fairly run of the mill, boring retail insurance company had this massive financial product subsidiary that was the insurer to credit default throughout all of Wall Street and it bit off more than it can chew and needed a bailout. And ultimately taxpayers made money in that bailout, but whatever. Um, that's an example, you know, it's not just banks, it's not just brokers. Some of the insurance, part of the insurance world got, got a little, you know, off track and did things that probably shouldn't have done all because of financial engineering and, you know, that what we thought were miracles of securitization and OTC derivatives and the whole sort of shadow banking system. So considering your, your insurance background and your financial engineering background, the, uh, recent developments we've seen with, uh, three banks. FDIC has wrapped its arms and said, basically, there's no cap on FDIC insurance anymore. Yeah. Does that worry you? Yes and no. So, again, I, I don't, I like to think I'm a capitalist, let the market see what you're going to do, but within reason. There does need to be support to some extent, certain circumstances, for example, going back to 08, 09, um, part of me is like, you all got yourself into this mess. You should just burn. And by you, I mean, you know, the big banks and companies that, that a bit off more than they can chew. But at some point you do have to worry about wall street infecting main street. If there's contagion, if there's crisis and confidence, if there was 08, 09 was, was almost literally the financial world as we know it seized up and or collapsed, that wouldn't have been good for, for everyone, not just the big banks that took on these mortgage-backed securities and finance them, but you know, mom and pop people like you and I. So yes, there needs to be a backstop at some point. At what cost does that backstop come with? Be it more inflation, 
be it um, uh, you know moral hazard that people are now people meaning companies are more willing to do risky things. I don't know. That's a known consequence of things like this, but you have to kind of choose what's the lesser of two evils. So now, present day, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, Silicon Valley, sure, you know, what, what we think we know now is that they had this duration mis mismatch where their uh, assets, long dated treasuries that got crushed in price as interest rates shot up. Uh, once there was rumblings of they had some potential trouble, this is where things got ugly. Um, it was a Peter Thiel or someone else basically announced to the world, hey, everyone, get your money out of Silicon Valley Bank, mm -hmm. 42 billion taken out in a day. There's no stopping that. You know, I, I don't think prior to him making that announcement, they would have had catastrophic issues. Runs on banks are nothing more than sort of self-fulfilling fear mongering, mm -hmm. right? Once it mm -hmm. starts, it's hard to stop. So not to say it didn't have problems and its balance sheet wasn't questionable, but the fact that it went from seemingly fine to out of business in two days, that was, that was nothing more than just people inciting fear and forcing it to go out of business basically because yeah. of the whole bank run. Yeah. Signature loosely similar. So, you know, to my knowledge, I don't know it in, in detail. So anyway, so the Fed stepped in and, and basically said that we're insuring beyond the 250 grand per person FDIC limit. Do I think that's good or bad? Given the circumstances, given we saw how contagion can quickly play out in 08, 09. Now, granted, that's a different set of scenario that, than it is now. I, I'm supportive of what they did. Now, I don't want this to be a freewheeling, hey, anyone who wants it gets this unlimited backstop. But I do believe, and we saw it happen quickly, fear running through the markets, you know, people speculating about who's the next bank or even brokerage slash bank to fail. And there's news out there about Schwab because um, they similarly have some, some long dated assets on their balance sheet. So I, I'm supportive of that backstop. They got to rein it in at some point though, but w when it is a crisis in confidence, I almost feel like the only thing that will help is, is overarching you know, hand to the government to step in and kind of calm people's nerves. But at what expense? I don't know. You know, long term it's, will tell It's us. frustrating to people because you make a reasoned argument that the catast catastrophe will be untenable if you don't step in. But by stepping in all the time, you do create the moral hazard that you, that you mentioned. You do. Now, now, in 08, you know, we printed a lot of money to put liquidity into the system seven-ish trillion dollars, if I remember correctly. And now we're having a Fed with assets that are unthinkable in size, and we have yeah. a national debt that's stratospheric, and interest rates are climbing. Anything about that worry you? Sure. At some level, debt, in theory, is unsustainable. Um, you know, I've always said this and still feel the same. What's different between the U.S. government, even more so than other countries, but what's different between the U.S. government and a private borrower, a private issuer, is the ability to tax and is the current um, badge the U.S. has as a country, as a currency, as the place of relative safety and security compared to the rest of the world. When, when people need the flight to quality, need somewhere to go, need a reserve currency, need safe assets, they go to the US. At the moment, I don't see any other country or currency usurping the US or the US dollar as the place people want to be. You know, your euro currency had a shot 
with the whole United States yeah. and Europe experiment that's slowly unraveling. Mm -hmm. But as we see now, that's that, you know the euro is not coming close to to unseating the dollar as a, the world's reserve currency. Um, China, world's second largest economy. I don't know that they'll get there in our lifetime. I mean, the, the fact that they're communist alone is going to prevent a lot of the world from from buying into that as the world's safe place or reserve currency. Uh, the the BRICS, you know, that the new common currency. I don't. Uh, is it BRICS? Whatever the acronym is, it's like Iran and Russia and China and someone else trying to create this basket of currency to be the new mm -hmm. world's reserve. Yeah, you know, good luck. Who knows? Maybe I'm gullible, but I don't see that taking over for the same reason because those are kind of questionable actors. So where I'm going with this is so long as the U.S. is the world's and the U.S. dollar is the world's place to be. And this is going to sound stupid and it, it pains me to say it and I realize it sounds stupid, but it's almost like the level of debt doesn't matter. You can just keep printing it as long as there's demand, which there appears to still be. Where it's going to get well, ugly well, is if and when the world stops that and gets concerned about the debt service and gets concerned with the idea of you can't just keep printing your way out of this, um, then the party ends. Now, that would be catastrophic, not just for the US, but for the rest of the world. And I think the world knows that. So there's this weird sort of relationship where like, yeah, the world is paying attention to the US's debt level and interest rates that spiked up don't help the debt level. But it's also like, what's the alternative? What are they going to do? So I know I people will think that. a lot less of me because of that, but that, this, I, I don't think I'm that far off in those views. This is, this is counterintuitive to most people because everyone's concerned about the level of the debt. But, you know, I think we're about 135% of GDP. GDP, yeah. Right? And you said, that's terrible. We should have hyperinflation. All these terrible things should be happening. You look at Japan, they're 275% of GDP. And they're struggling to ignite inflation. And they have 0% yeah. interest rates. So I think that tells you that when you have your own currency, you almost can create unlimited amount of debt. And uh, yes, you know, right. It's, it's crazy. Now, it sounds nuts, but I think it's true. A friend of mine is the macroeconomist Richard Duncan, and he very much advocates for the United States government spending trillions right now in artificial intelligence and the next generation of you know biotechnology and all of these you know emerging technologies because he's concerned that we're going to slip number two vis-a-vis -vis China, and he contends that whoever controls AI is going to control the world. We can't let us slip back, you know, past China or behind China. And so he's not concerned at all about adding another $7 trillion to the debt. So it's very interesting. Um, but who knows? And none of us know. This is all a big experiment that, that's unfolding in, in the grand scheme of, you know, economics and monetary systems. Um, it's a lot more art than it is science. A lot of it's sort of subjective, qualitative, you know, yeah, it's good to have theories and formulas and say this is unsustainable because it hit this level. But like you said, with Japan and what we're seeing with the US, it doesn't seem to be bothering anyone yet. Now, again, it pains me to say that, and I know it sounds ignorant, but realistically speaking, like you said, I think there almost is an unlimited appetite for the world's reserve currency and what's viewed as the world's safe assets. Yeah, I agree. Okay. so. How did we make the transition into a financial planning practice? So after 04, went into, let's call it Wall Street, you know, big bank, investment bank, commercial bank world, 
did that for a while, um, you know, 10 plus years. Ultimately, I always still had an interest in the personal slash, you know, retail side of financial services, did my own financial planning, investing and et cetera. Um, it wasn't until 2016 where a few confluence of events happened that really, you know, changed my, my, my uh, life path and career path here. One was my, my mother was transitioning toward retirement. She worked with a traditional percent, you know, one and a quarter percent of assets and a management advisor mm -hmm. who really just uh, overcomplicated investment management, you know, ha had an account where it was like two dozen mutual funds and, you know, some were 2%, 1% allocations, like what's the point? But anyway, um, he, she was trying to figure out her social security claiming strategy. And she has one of the more complicated ones where she's divorced from my father. She's of an age where she can still do the restricted application, you know, to take just his benefit without her own yet, or his you know, spousal off of him. And so she was trying to figure out with her financial advisor how to do that. And, and they weren't sure of the answer. Uh, and they were, they were honest about it, which is cool. But so my mom asked me and, and I knew nothing about social security at the time. I just, I thought it was a forced savings account the government made for us, which is horribly wrong in hindsight, but I, I helped her dig in and research and, you know, eventually get to the right answer and, and learned a ton in that process. And like the, the, the light went off, like, wow, this is what I thought advice giving and financial planning should be back when I was you know, a senior in college looking for jobs doing this and mm -hmm. didn't know they existed. And so that, that got me re-engaged and like, okay, let, let me revisit this advisory industry. Maybe a lot has changed in the 16 years since I, I last looked at it. Um, I just started fishing around. And so that, that was one big event, my, my mom's own personal experience with social security. And the other was once I started looking, I came across the podcast from the XY planning network that just blew the lid off things in terms of how you can do things differently in terms of you can be a solo. Uh, you don't have to manage assets. You can charge hourly. You can charge flat fees. You know, it's not just sell products for commission. It's not just gather assets and charge handsomely, you know, one, one and a half percent on them. And so that was it. Um, you know, I was hooked from that point forward. This was 2016-ish. I said to myself, you know what? Let me figure this out, how to do this by myself, on my own terms, offer services I want to offer, focus on what I want to focus on, charge how I want to charge, um, not have to sell products, not have to gather assets. To, to make the livelihood. And along the way, I was also kind of, um, you know, my professional life learned a lot, worked with amazing people, saw some really cool things and trades and learned a ton about the industry, both insurance and investments and risk management, but we just kind of burnt out and didn't want to do it another 20 years between long hours, stressful work, you know, living in central New Jersey, commuting to and from midtown Manhattan every day, you know, roughly three hours of commuting every day. I like, I don't want to do this. So couple that with now this reignited passion for realizing maybe I can actually get into financial mm -hmm. advising on my terms. That's what changed things. So from 2016 onward was a, a nonstop laser focused. Yeah, I'm going to do this. Let me take a few years to learn more about the industry, the regulations, the technical aspects of planning and the things I want to focus on, best practices, fee structures, get some uh, formal uh, you know, designations and, and education specific to what I want to do and also save up money personally while I'm working. Cause I know once I leave my old world and start this, I'm going to be making zero on day one. Now, thankfully my wife has a job, so we get some income there, you know, it doesn't cover all our expenses, but, um, income and benefits through her. But, uh, still, I know I need to save up this stockpile of cash. Cause my assumption was if I make zero income 
from this thing for over two years. I don't want to be touching home equity or tapping the kids 529. So we built up a war chest of cash. And I figure within two years time, I'll know whether or not this advisory thing is ultimately working. If it is mm-hmm. great, if not, you know, worst case, I give up and go back to my day job you know, in the corporate world. So that was it. It was ultimately uh, 2016. I made that decision. This is what I want to do. I had a three-year plan sketched out that I would leave Wall Street in 2019. I'd have to save up enough money, you know, get my credentials and be comfortable in, in what I know and learned. And so 2019 would be when I would uh, quit and start up my advisory practice. And here I am. And you formed an RIA? I formed a registered investment advisor, fee-only RIA. Uh, it is truly independent. You know, I'm, I'm the owner of the LLC. Uh, up until two weeks ago, I was a sole employee. I, I just hired someone starting March 1st. Uh, she's a second advisor. She, she works virtually out of Massachusetts. I'm here in New Jersey still. Mm. And uh, we focus on retirement planning. We do investment management as part of the service. Uh, but the real focus is planning, distribution planning, tax planning wrapped into that. So that's a big differentiator is a tax aspect of it. Focus just on retirement and distribution. And on the investment side, what's what's different is uh, charge a flat annual fee that's not tied to investable assets because I'm fundamentally opposed to the percent of asset model, uh, horribly conflicted and goofy. So flat annual fee, um, tax focused, and, and things have, have worked out much better than expected in terms of uh, the business growing. Cool. And how do you find clients' reception to the idea of a, a fee as opposed to AUM charge? Um, they seem to like it. Now- the flat fee doesn't work for everyone. So currently the fee is right around 10,000 bucks a year, which do the math. If someone's got $200,000, they can mm-hmm. go to the run of the mill, you know, percent of AUM guy down the street and pay two or three grand a year. Now, granted, I'm fairly confident they're not getting the same level of service and tax knowledge and expertise that, that, you know, my firm brings, but still they're going to look at me and, and laugh. Like I'm not paying this joker 10 grand a year when I can pay two or three here. And so people with, not that there's a formal asset size requirement, but doing the math, the people with noticeably less than a million bucks aren't reaching out to me in the first place. Those that do have a million plus, uh, it, it's it's resonated really, really well with folks, especially once you get you know two to five million dollars. Yeah. I'm doing the same things and more as most advisors. Yet the fee is ten thousand bucks versus. You know, so you don't scale up your fee if they have five or ten million dollars. Still correct. The same fee. I, I do limit at some point, you know, I draw sort of a line in the sand. If someone's got 10 million bucks in net worth, I, I pass on them. If someone's got areas of complexity, I, I don't focus on like special needs planning, international angles, people with like complicated legal estate structures and all sorts of private investments, like, you know, pass on that. So it's a fairly typical standard retiree, you know, worked somewhere else, may or may not have a pension, will have social security, owns a house, maybe two. Kids are usually grown, uh, you know, may or may not have some cash value life insurance or annuities. So fairly standard, typical things where their wants and needs are, are more or less the same. I have this portfolio. How do I distribute it tax efficiently? How does it dovetail with my social security, pension, annuity, you know, other products I might have? Um, do I keep the second house? Do I sell it? Do I rent it? So I'm, I'm doing and focusing on the same things with everyone. And I can say with 100% honesty, whether you got a million bucks or 5 million bucks, the, the asset size has, has virtually no bearing on the time, the resources, the expertise needed in managing investments and or providing the planning. So why set a fee off that? That's why mm-hmm. I said it's, it's, you know, horribly conflicted and goofy to do that, but most industry still does. Yeah. So let me 
chat about my favorite subject for a moment, retirement income distribution planning. Sure. You have a client before you with $1.5 million and is charged with now making that, you know, their retirement income to supplement Social Security, but they certainly need that income from that portfolio. How do you think about it? What's your strategy? What's your methodology? What's your default you know, position in a case like that? Don't have a default. It's really facts and circumstances based on person's financial circumstances, their own uh, qualitative emotional things. And here's what I mean by that. So someone's got you know, $30,000, $40,000 in social security, and let's say they live really modestly, total expenses are 50 grand a year. And they got a million and a half dollar investable portfolio in their typical 65 year old, let's say. So we'll assume a 30 year life expectancy. It's going to be hard to burn through that million and a half unless you invest it all in one stock and that stock tanks. Considering their withdrawal above and beyond Social Security is 10, 15,000 bucks a year, inclusive of taxes. So then it's like they, they don't need, you know, they can be ultra conservative with the investments because they don't need it to grow a lot. Or they can be fairly aggressive if they wanted, because even if it does drop substantially, they'll still be okay. This is where now you fold in sort of the qualitative emotional aspects. How conservative of a person are they? You know, what's their general risk tolerance and views about seeing their accounts drop, even if they know it won't materially impact their lives and their finances? Depending on that, that then dictates either how that million and a half gets invested. Maybe you park a lot in cash or cash-like products. You know, maybe it's a, a typical 60-40 mix. Uh, maybe they they buy a rental property, you know, if they're on board with the idea of being a landlord. Maybe they get some guaranteed income sources if they want to. Um, you know, if that helps them sleep, if they wanted to buy an annuity such that it generates 15 grand a year guaranteed income to sit on top of Social Security and cover all their expenses, great. That's the right answer for them. Uh, if, if they don't and they're confident that their whatever, 40,000 bucks of Social Security covers at least their uh, you know, required expenses and the million and a half is basically discretionary money, then they don't necessarily need you know, a guaranteed option. But if they want it, great. So long way of saying it all depends. Different story if someone needs to draw 80 grand a year from the portfolio and has only a million and a half, then it's like, eh, you may need to rethink that. Or at least um, let's parse out that additional withdrawal you need, how much of it is like necessary stuff versus fun money discretionary then maybe you cover the discretionary with guaranteed, I'm sorry, you know, cover the necessary at least with a, a guaranteed income source like an annuity. Sure. That makes sense. Perfect sense. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions that are off the topic of money entirely. Sure. Well, this one's probably not completely, but you know, if this was a magic wand and I could give it to you and you could wave it and you could make any change in the world of finance money, banking, insurance, uh, investments, any change at all. It would happen instantly. What change would you make? Man, that's a good one. Um, I, I almost wish there was a standardized single regulatory body and, and set of requirements for anyone who's in the business of giving any sort of advice, financial advice to, to people, to individuals. As you know now, there's three separate and distinct regulatory bodies, none of which really cover financial planning or advice. They cover their respective product or business. FINRA covers those who sell securities. State insurance boards or commissions cover those who sell insurance products. SEC or the states, depending on asset size, cover those who manage investments. None of those directly cover the general giving of advice or planning. 
you know, uh, oversight for advice and planning, it just sort of bastardized and indirectly bolted onto one of those three or a combination of those three. Mm-hmm. But there, there's very disparate, um, you know, requirements and oversight and, and, and lack of cohesion across those regulatory bodies such that consumers are, are confused as hell. And, and part of it's the industry's fault for, for being so different and disjointed about someone calls themselves an advisor or a planner or a wealth manager or a wealth consultant or whatever name you want to come up with, safe money retirement specialist or a fiduciary. Fiduciary is a meaningless buzzword at this point, unfortunately. They're confused as hell. Like they don't know who they're talking about, whether or not the person actually has to act in their best interests or how they're compensated or are they really here to give advice, really here to sell a product, or really here just to gather my assets. So it's never going to happen in our lifetime, I, I don't think. Because there's too many competing interests across securities, insurance, and investment worlds to, to combine all this into one single oversight for quote unquote financial advisors and regulate who's able to use that title or something like it, whatever title we come up with. That's a Herculean effort to do that. Like I said, it's probably not going to happen, but in a perfect mm-hmm. world, I, I think that would make sense without being overbearing or, or too much uh, uh, regulation. I think that's a great answer, Andy. Great. Thank you. Um, let me ask you this. Let's say you were not a financial advisor, but instead you could be anything else. Uh, a great trumpet player, uh, an actor, a comedian, uh, an astronaut, a nuclear physicist. What would you want to be? Teacher. What kind of teacher? Um, so one, I, I do, I'm an adjunct teacher at Rutgers University, uh, teaching finance there. That's only a semester by semester thing as they, they need help and as I'm available. I truly enjoy that. Passionate about teaching, educating, makes me feel like I'm making a difference to explain something to someone and see them get it or yeah. you know, feel like they're better because of it. That, that fills my soul. You know, that, that fills my bucket. Um, so I would do teaching in some capacity. I, I'd probably, you know, given that my, my background and interest in finance, I'd probably still do it at the you know, college or above level teaching finance of some sort. But like I said, the first time I ever said, this is what I want to do with my life. Actually, I don't know if I said, yeah, I did. I wanted to be a physics or calculus teacher. So I wouldn't put it past me to also eventually teach high school at some point in, you know, one of those subjects. Cool. Last question. Imagine your own retirement in its most idealized, perfect iteration. Where are you? What are you doing? I, I have no idea. Uh, I'm 45, so I got a while to figure it out. No, but you have to answer. <laughs> um, Put you under pressure here. Do I, have, do I have to be with my wife or not? <laughs> not going there. No, I, I, we, I think we have slightly different views about what we want retirement to be. We've never gotten too into it. So again, it's kind of early to say. It's, but, it's about you personally. Um, it'd be simple. I, I, I like friends. I like social connection. I can see me being in a retirement community environment where you just hang out and drive golf carts to other people's garages to do, you know, happy hour to happy hour, any given night. That's all it takes. What, what, what makes me happy, uh, is just being around friends. Doesn't need to be fancy. Doesn't need to be elaborate. Just hanging out with people. I enjoy doing things. Uh, I like live music. I, I like, uh, coupling live music with cold Miller lights. Um, Maybe that'll get old at some point, but you know, hanging out. So, and I don't like the winters anymore. So, born and raised in the Northeast, I'm I'm, I'm over winters. So, I can see me being in a warmer climate. 
just living somewhere, hanging out. Uh, I can see me doing this financial advising thing well into retirement. Uh, I truly enjoy it. it brings me, uh, you know, satisfaction. And it's a, it's a job where it can be as much or as little time commitment and involvement as, as you want. I can see me never actually stopping work. I, I love being productive and doing things. I can see me slowly as I age ramping down, you know, my, my workload and number of clients and just kind of slowly riding this thing out until it, it sort of naturally ends at some point. But I don't see me ever fully stopping work in some capacity because I enjoy it. Well, I mean, in essence, aren't you teaching one by one with your advising? You're teaching. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, I, it, it sounds cheesy and hokey, but I, I truly have the heart of an educator, even on my, uh, my social content, you know, Facebook, YouTube podcast. Uh, it's all about education. you know, freely give away all the stuff that's in this big noggin of mine um, to make people better. You know, it makes me feel like I'm helping and sharing. And, and yes, you know, what's been weird, and this is why the business grew so fast, was this policy, and it wasn't a manufacturer policy. This is genuinely me just giving away and helping as much as possible with asking nothing in return. You know, I don't give away answers on Facebook as a part of lead capture, or I don't give away freely downloadable stuff with any sort of give me your name or email. It's just, boom, here's my website, you know, retirement planning education. It's all free stuff. Go get it. Um, that, that selfless, not asking for stuff in return, showing and evidencing what you know, genuinely to help has been the best sales and business development tool you can possibly have. And it worked out really well because I hate sales in the traditional sense. And so without having to sell, I mean, I know I'm selling, but this is just me helping and giving, which is my version of selling that I truly love. And it worked out really well, thankfully. Well, clearly did. And um, I want to thank you for taking time to be on the podcast. I think you truly are outstanding. And uh, it was a great pleasure to have you, Andy. I wish you all the best going forward. You know, you're, you're going to just go up and up and up to stardom, I think. I love the path you're on. You're thank you. You're doing a great job. Appreciate the opportunity to be on. Thank you very much. Okay. It's my pleasure. All the best. Thank you. You've been listening to the Outstanding Advisor Podcast. If you would like to be featured on the podcast, tell us why you are an outstanding financial advisor with an interesting story to tell.